Matthew 1. The birth of Jesus Christ came about in this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. This is God's word. You can grab a seat. Well, we're in the fourth week of Advent as we lit, lit our candles, and we're the third week in this series. And uh, I'll give a quick recap. First week, we looked uh, at this passage, and we talked about the virgin birth. And I uh, was um, corrected by someone graciously that I said the immaculate conception, which is a different thing. Uh, I, I'm not as familiar with, uh, with Catholic theology. So I blame um, Kendrick Lamar, who also talks about the Immaculate Conception. So what we're talking about here is an immaculate, concep- a immaculate Conception, but not the Immaculate Conception. But the first sermon, I focus on this idea that, like God wants to make a baby with Mary, he's offering, the, the story of Christmas is the same offer to us. It's the invite for us to think God wants to actually make a baby with, with us. And the weirdness of that statement can help us understand what is going on in this story, that God actually wants to do something new in our lives, in each of our lives. And so on one hand, that's the really good news that God has not given up on us. He is a God who is always recreating, and that's what he wants to do in each one of our lives. He's creating something new in each one of us. He hasn't given up, so we shouldn't give up on ourselves. And at the same time, God is making a baby. So as miraculous as the story is, it takes a long time for Jesus to become this, uh, this figure who's going to be the rabbi and the savior of the world. And so God acts in our lives in the same way, that the Spirit sometimes acts in very slow ways, bearing fruit. And so it's an invitation, Christmas is an invitation for us not to give up on God, but to watch and wait for his slow and patient work in our lives. So God wants to make a baby with us. And then last week we looked at the person of Joseph. And in this passage calls him a righteous man, which is a very important word in the Gospel of Matthew. What does it mean to be righteous? And so we saw three characteristics of Joseph that means uh, of righteousness in his life. The first is that he's a person who's gracious. So when he, uh, Mary tells him that she's pregnant, he doesn't go and uh, flip out or assert his rights, but he's extremely gracious and generous to her. And the second thing he does is he learns to say maybe to the Spirit of God. Everything in his history, everything in the law would tell him to divorce Mary and push her far away and take this child that's not his and push the child far away. But instead, he brings the child close. He says maybe to the Spirit of God and this angel in his life. And then finally, to be a righteous person means to walk in faith, to step into what God has for him. And he does that by bringing Mary and the baby into his life and naming him Jesus as the angel commands. So today we're, we're going to take a look at this passage for the last time, and I don't usually name my sermons, but if you're taking notes, the name of this sermon is called Jesus is Cilantro. Jesus is Cilantro. So if you are taking notes, please write that down now. But we're going to focus on this passage, this part of the passage today, uh, from verse 22 and 23. It says, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. 
See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. So in this passage, we're introduced to one of these uh, very important names for God and for Jesus, Emmanuel, and it means God is with us. And there's a theological truth to this name, that Jesus, the person of Jesus, is also God. He is the God-man. And there's an emotional and personal truth to this name for us, that God wants to come and dwell among us, tabernacle among us, be with us and near us. And I think that's really easy news for us to swallow. It'd be like if you were going to a Christmas party tomorrow and they were like, oh, and Ryan Reynolds is going to show up. You'd be like, oh, great, that's awesome. Like this cool person wants to come and be with me. And if you think he's, if you think he's cool, if not, substitute him for person of your choice. But the point is to say we can get down with that, I think, that God wants to come and be with us. But there's also a third truth to uh, this name Emmanuel for us. And, and to, in order to get there, we need to dig into this passage a little bit and look at uh, the passage that's being quoted here from Isaiah 7. And this brings up an important theme in the Gospel of Matthew that we'll be exploring as we look in the Gospel of Matthew in the next three months. That uh, Matthew is a hinge book in the Bible. It's the first book of what we call the New Testament. And what the author Matthew wants to do is he wants to take all the stories and all the themes from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Scriptures, and show how they meet their climax and fulfillment in the person of Jesus. We see that word right in this passage, fulfill. That is a very important word in the Gospel of Matthew. So let's take a look at the context of this quote from Isaiah 7. So this guy, Isaiah, Isaiah, he's a prophet in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Scriptures, which basically means that he speaks for God. He's God's mouthpiece. And the context of this passage is that he's going to talk to this king, the king of Judah, named Ahaz. And at the time, Judah was under siege, so there was a, there was a war going on, and there were two countries surrounding Judah, and they were fighting against it. And it was unclear if they were going to win or lose the battle. So they're right in the middle of this giant battle. And Ahaz is, is, is leaning into this maybe. He's not sure what the future means for him. Is Judah going to win or are they going to lose? So Ahaz, or sorry, Isaiah comes to him as God's prophet and he says to Ahaz, he says, don't be afraid or intimidated because if you trust in God, you won't be destroyed. But if you put your hope in anything else, anyone else, you will not succeed and you will be destroyed. And then God says something very, very interesting to Ahaz. He says, I want you to ask me for a sign, anything that you want to give you a sign that I am with you. And the Hebrew in the passage is really, really interesting. He says, anything from the bottom of Sheol, so from the depths of the underworld, all the way to the heights of heaven. And you've got to remember how the Hebrew people looked at the world. Like they lived in the middle, there was an underworld, and there was heaven. So God is saying to Ahaz, anything that you want, any sign that you want to prove that I am God and I am with you and that you will succeed in this war. So this is a good story because most of us don't know the end. It's kind of an obscure Old Testament story, but usually when we read most of the stories from the Bible, we know the end. So what do you think Ahaz says? I'm just going to give you just a second to think about it. God offers Ahaz, I'm going to do any sign to prove that I'm with you. And, and then Ahaz has the opportunity to respond. Okay, you got what you would do? Here's what Ahaz says back to, God, to, to Isaiah and so to God. It says, but Ahaz responded, I don't want to ask. I don't want to ask for a sign. I don't want to put the Lord to the test. 
I don't want to ask for a sign. I don't want to put the Lord to the test. Now, on one hand, this sounds like a really good biblical answer. Do you know who else has said this exact thing? Jesus. Jesus, in the Gospel of Matthew, says these exact words to Satan when he's tempted in the desert. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. So he's, and he's quoting a bunch of Old Testament scriptures here. And so Ahaz is doing the same thing. He's doing something that's profoundly biblical. But a lot of the commentators say that Ahaz is showing false piety. So what he's actually doing here is he's saying, I don't want a sign from God because I don't want to have to put my trust in God in this time. What I want is not a sign. Remember, if God wants to come and he's going to give a sign, it's going to be like a baby. But basically what he's saying is like, I don't want a baby. What I want is for some other armies to show up. I want miraculous deliverance. I want, some, I want to put my trust in military and other, others' militaries coming to rescue me. That would be useful to me at this moment in time. So I don't want a word from God. I don't want to have to trust. I don't want to have to say maybe to God and wait this out. And in this way, Ahaz, King Ahaz is a, is a foil or the opposite of Joseph in our story. Joseph goes and he, he trusts in God. He trusts in God in the maybe. And King Ahaz is unwilling to. So that's the story. So, so listen, verse 13. Isaiah says to him after this happens, Listen, house of David, is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of my God? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, a young woman will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. This is our passage. And what will Emmanuel mean for Ahaz and the house of David? Is he going to be good news or bad news? Let's keep reading. Verse 15. By the time Emmanuel learns to reject what is bad and choose what is good, he will be eating curds and honey. So commentators think what's happening here is that Isaiah has, he's not just addressing Ahaz, but he's addressing the whole royal court. There's all these people around, and he says, so that's why he says, listen, house of David. So what he's saying here is there's a woman here in this royal court who's going to have a baby. She's going to conceive and have a baby. And by the time that baby knows what's right and wrong, so in Hebrew tradition, that's 13 years old, they will no longer be eating royal food because the city will be sacked and Judah will be destroyed. Here's how it goes on in the rest of the passage, verse 20. On that day, the Lord will use a razor hired from beyond the Euphrates River, the king of Assyria, to shave the hair on your head, the hair on your legs, and even your beards. Kind of an odd statement. Um, but in that time, remember, if you were here uh, last week, we talked about Joseph. One of the biggest emotions he's dealing with is shame. And we don't really think this way generally as Western people. If you come from a more traditional culture, you think this way. But shame, if you remember one of the definitions I used in Thai, one of the ways that you say shame is it's ripping someone's face off so everyone else can see. Shame is a social reality. So that what uh, God is saying to Ahaz here is that you will be a deeply shamed people. If you read the Old Testament, there's times where they'll catch, capture armies and they'll cut the beards off all the men or shave half of their head. It's a way of publicly showing that they've been defeated and experiencing shame. So that's what's going to happen. The people will be shamed. And it continues on verse 23. And on that day, every place where there were a thousand vines worth a thousand pieces of silver will become thorns and briars. The best things that you have will become the worst. And the things that give you sustenance are the things that will become thorns and snares and problems for you. Desolation. So this is what God is saying to Ahaz. Because of rejecting me, you will experience desolation. The people 
of Israel will experience desolation, or the people of, of David, and the whole country will actually be destroyed. So, Merry Christmas, right? That's the basic message of the story. But here's what I think this is teaching us in this passage. The presence of God is like a double-edged sword. When God arrives, Emmanuel comes, it can be really, really good news. As when God first comes to Ahaz, he says, hey, I'm here. You can have hope on me. If you put your, hope, if you put your faith in me, it's very good news for you. So that's one hand. On the other hand, it can be very, very bad news. If your allegiance is not with me, then it's going to go poorly for you. The best example I thought of uh, to, to help us understand this is the example of the sun. So God's presence to us is a lot like the sun. On one hand, the sun is super good news. Like I woke up today, it was bright in my bedroom. And I was like, what is going on with the, like is it, is it two in the afternoon? Um, it wasn't, by the way. Uh, but it's like those sunny days in Vancouver in the winter are so amazing. I remember when Sarah and I first moved here, we moved from Alberta where it was like minus 40 for, it'll be minus 40 for weeks in the summer. And we're like, oh, it's just going to be so great here. And then I think it rained for 90 days straight the first year we were here. And we're just like, what are we doing here? And those sunny days are just so phenomenal. And they teach us that the sun is just something that we need. You know, but beyond the sun giving us life and helping things grow, it's just also something beautiful and amazing. We need the light. But on the other hand, the sun is phenomenally dangerous, which is one of the reasons I chose this picture. I was trying to figure out how hot the sun is, so I googled how hot is the sun, which 45 minutes later did not have an answer. Uh, it seems like it should be a simple answer, but according to Google, it's not. So the mixed results would say this. The sun is somewhere between 5,600 degrees and 10 million degrees, which I feel like is much too wide of a range. Uh, but at the same time, it's like, it's bad. It's, it's too hot is basically what it's saying. If we get close to the sun, it's also dangerous for us. And we know this too. If you stare at the sun, you will become blind. The sun can also be something, as much as it gives us life, it can cause skin cancer and other problems. And so both are true at the same time of the sun, just like God. The sun is, is both good and dangerous, and it's the same thing about God. God is both good and dangerous. Or as the words of the Bible would say, that we can be blessed or cursed. That's the way that the Bible would say it. And the story of the Bible is all about navigating this dynamic of God's goodness, but also that he is dangerous. And it starts right in Genesis 1. If you remember back to the summer when we studied Genesis 1, it talks about how God's desire is to make his home with us, to build a, te a temple or a tabernacle where he can come and be with us and we can meet with him and reflect him into the world. And so that's the, the start of the story, that God's people dwell with him. But sin ruins the ability to be in and around God. You can think of it like this. Sin removes the ozone layer of us. So just like our ozone protects us from the negative effects of the sun, sin destroys the ozone layer. Probably there's a literal translation that we could take there as well. But that's the idea that the sun, now the goodness of the sun actually becomes something dangerous to us. And so that's what happens with the first people in the story. So they get kicked out of the presence of God. They get removed from the temple. And we think of that as a bad thing. And obviously it is, but it's also fundamentally God's grace to those people. 
He doesn't destroy them by staying close to them. He moves them away so that they don't get burnt up because God is both good and dangerous. And the rest of the story of the Bible is trying to help us navigate this dynamic because we need the sun. We need the light. We need God. But it's also become something that's fundamentally dangerous to us. We can be blessed or we can be cursed. Let me give you two examples of how this plays out in the story of the Bible through two different leaders. The first leader, his name is Moses. So Moses, in one of the stories about him, he goes up onto this mountain. And again, we have to visualize in our minds the way that people looked at the world at that time. We live on the earth. God lives up there in heaven. And so if you're going up a mountain, you're getting closer to the presence of God. It's a dangerous space. So Moses goes up on the mountain And all the people are shaking down below on the bottom of the mountain because God's presence comes on the mountain. But because Moses has this ozone layer around him and he's invited into the presence of God, he comes down off the mountain. He doesn't die, but he's radiant. God's glory is now shining from the face of Moses. And that's one story, one example. And that's what the Bible says it means to be human, that we are called to be these people who come into the presence of God and then reflect the goodness of God into the world. But let me give you another example of some other leaders, Hophni and Phinehas. And I know you guys are all familiar with the story, but I'm still going to share it anyways. Um, But they're priests, which basically means that they work in the temple, which is the hot spot of where God lives. That's where his presence is. And so their, their job is basically to be the ozone layer for people, to maintain that ozone layer between the people of God and the presence of God, so that the presence of God can be good and not just dangerous. But they end up stealing from the temple. They steal from the sacrifice system. And so a prophet comes to their dad, whose name is Eli, and he says this, look, God's presence, which is fundamentally a good thing in your midst, it's a good thing around you, has now become dangerous to you. And he says the reason is because you've put your trust in your sons. You've honored your sons more than you've honored me. And so he gives them a huge list of curses. He says you've gone now from being blessed to being cursed. Your sons are going to die, and your family is going to be knocked out. And then he says, I'm going to give you a sign, whether you like it or not. Again, this theme, you're cursed, you get a sign. And the sign is that your sons will both die on the same day. That's what happens. A few, a little while later, Hophni and Phinehas go out with the ark of God, with the presence of God. They die in battle. The presence of God is captured, and Eli dies as well. See, the presence of God can be a blessing, or it can be a curse. It can be good or dangerous to us. And the Gospel of Matthew actually navigates this exact same dynamic. The Gospel of Matthew, as I said, is trying to retell the story or show us how the story of Israel comes to its conclusion and climax in Jesus. And the the Gospel of Matthew has five blocks of teaching that are supposed to mirror the the five books of Moses in the Old Testament. And the first book of teaching starts with the Beatitudes. How do they begin? Blessed is the poor. Blessed are the meek. Blessed, blessed, blessed. This is one option that you can be around the presence of God, around Emmanuel, and be blessed. But the last block of teaching closes with curses. Woe to you, you hypocrites. Woe to you, you blind guides, your brood of vipers, your whitewashed tombs. Woe to you. Blessing or curse. What will Emmanuel do in your midst? And so Jesus is Emmanuel. And Jesus is cilantro. He splits a room. Just like if I was to ask you, do you like cilantro or not? There's probably not gonna be, a lot of people going to be in the middle. It's either like, I love cilantro, and I put it on absolutely anything I can, or it tastes like dish soap, and I try to steer clear of it. 
Jesus is the same thing. This baby that's coming into the story is a beautiful thing and something we can celebrate, but it's also a deeply polarizing one. We can be blessed by his presence or we can find ourselves cursed. So the question for us really becomes, how do we find ourselves blessed? How can we find ourselves blessed by this child rather than cursed? So let's look back at Isaiah. And in the passage just before Isaiah talks to Ahaz, something very interesting happens to the person of Isaiah. He comes in contact with this God, Emmanuel. God comes to him, and he has this amazing vision of a God who's filling the temple, and there's all this smoke, and he sees these robes. It's this holy and dangerous God that Isaiah experiences. And you got to remember, Isaiah is a professional, like we could call him a professional Christian. He is a prophet. That's his job. So we think if anyone is going to be blessed by the presence of God, if anyone's going to be okay, it would be this guy who is a professional Christian. Listen to what Isaiah says when he's faced with Emmanuel, with God right in front of him. Woe is me, blessed or cursed. Woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. I love the way that Eugene Peterson translates this in the message. He says it this way, doom, it's doomsday. I'm as good as dead. Every word I've ever spoken is tainted, blasphemous even. And the people I live with talk the same way, using words that corrupt and desecrate. And here I've looked to God in the face, the king, the God of angel armies. Isaiah realizes two things in this moment. The first is in the presence of a holy and gracious God. When Emmanuel comes into his life, he's doomed. He's flying too close to the sun and he's got no ozone layer. But here's the second thing that he realized, and I think this is actually more devastating. It's not the bad things that he's done that get him into trouble. That's not the reason why he's doomed. He's not like, oh, I experienced God and I remembered three years ago I broke the Sabbath. Oh, I'm doomed. That's not what he says. Instead, he says, the best parts of me are crooked and broken. That's what he does. He speaks for God. He uses his mouth. And he says in this passage, my mouth is broken and I live amongst the people of broken mouths. It's his best that's the problem, not the worst. And I don't know if you've ever experienced that in your own life, but I know that, that I have. Um, one of the things for me uh, that, or one of the times that I experienced that is when I went to university. If you've ever experienced when your best is not enough. So, to give you a little bit of a background, uh, I've always been one of the smartest kids uh, growing up. Now, you might say, that sounds a little cocky. I'd like you to remember at this moment that I was homeschooled. So, I was the best in my class, and I was also the worst in my class. Um, and uh, I was also grew up, like I said last week, in a really small town. 2,000 people, Sticktown, right? Stickville, just like Jesus. Um, so there wasn't a lot of kids there. It was a blue-collar town. And plus, on top of that, my dad is a Chinese immigrant, which, if you know anything about us, we care about school just slightly, okay? Um, so my dad always pushing me to do really well in school. And I remember, as I was preparing for this, I actually remembered going to Hong Kong with my family and just meeting some of my aunts for the first time. And they'd be like, how good are you in school? I'd be like, what? Like, what, are, what are your mocks? I'm like, so I'd, I'd tell them, and they're like, oh, such a good boy, such a smart boy. And I was just like, it was bizarre. But then they bought me stuff. So it was like really reinforced, you know, in my life to be a good student. Um, and then, uh, so all, my, my whole growing up, I was a great student. And then I went to Bible college. 
um, which just reinforced it even further. Uh, I thought it was going to be college. It wasn't really. I thought we were there to study the Bible. Most people were just there to, you know, bridal, college, find a wife. And so that just reinforced further that I was an excellent student. And then I went to the University of Alberta. 45,000 of the best students in their high schools. And I very, very, very quickly realized I was not as bright as I thought. I didn't know how to study. I didn't really know how to work hard. And turns out I wasn't as brilliant as I thought. And the reason I share that is because it had become part of my identity. Being a smart kid my whole life had been part of, of, of who I was, how I distinguished myself with people. That was my best that I was putting out into the world. And so going to university was really odd because at one hand, it actually, that was probably where I took my faith seriously for the first time in my life. I was growing closer and closer to Jesus, but at the same time, I was realizing on the other hand, like my identity was totally crumbling apart because I wasn't the, the smartest kid around anymore. My best wasn't the worst. My functional trust was in being a good student and that was breaking in front of me. In front of all these super smart kids, I turned out to be pretty average, like a lot of other people. And that's what Isaiah is saying and all of these passages are talking about. See, all of us have something that we put our hope and our trust in. They become our identity. Now, we don't live in a shame-based world, so for us, it's not an ashamed, or a religious world, so our identity is not going to be like, you know, Joseph or Isaiah or Ahaz. None of, none of us probably have our identity in being a prophet of God, um, although I've heard some people recently who are psalmists, so maybe it's still alive and well. Or that we're righteous people, that we're a Sadiq, like that's not going on our CV anywhere, or that we're the king of Judah. These aren't our things that we put our identity in. But we have ways of saying, I'm important. I'm somebody, I'm, you know, I'm enough in the world of knowing that we're enough. There's a few of us here who listen to a podcast called Asian Enough, and it's about uh, Asians in America just talking about their experience, and that word has resonated with me. Am I, and it's a question I think a lot of us ask as second generation kids, are we Asian enough? Who are we? It's an identity question, and all of us have those different things that we say, am I enough in the world? Am I a good enough student? Am I a good enough partner? Am I a good enough parent? Maybe some of you guys are going through that right now. Am I successful enough? You know, our world does this in a different way. Um, there are people who struggle with their sexual identity. Maybe they're a woman and they feel like they're a man. And so they, they, they want to change their sexual identity. But it's not enough just to do it on their own. They need to put it out in the world to be celebrated. They need to put it out in the world for people to respond back to them and say, yes, you're enough. It's everybody is, we're all doing this in different ways. We're coming to uh, other people to secure identity and know that we're enough. All of us are deeply religious. And we all know and we all fear that moment in our lives when we hear, in whatever way it is, you're not enough. Doomsday. I'm doomed, as Isaiah says. it. So what do we do in this, in this moment when we find out that we're not enough? Let's keep reading. Here's what Isaiah says. One of the seraphim flew to me one of the angels that's attending to the presence of God. And in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. Now, you don't have to know much about the Bible uh, to know what happens. What happens to people who are cursed and then there's heat coming towards them? Is that a pot? Like, is that a good thing in the Bible or a bad thing? It's a negative, right? Judgment is coming to him. You're on the wrong side. But here's what happened. It said, he touched my mouth with it and said, now that this has touched your lips... Your iniquity is removed, 
and your sin is atoned for. Rather than being burnt up or having his mouth burnt, Isaiah's mouth is cleaned and the coal removes his shame. And it changes his status. He goes from being someone who's cursed in the presence of excellent to someone who's blessed. And his identity goes from being the prophet and being frozen by his fears of being not enough in the presence of God into someone who is transformed. And his identity is now a human being standing in the presence of God. And here's how Matthew replays this story for us. Jesus is Emmanuel. He's God with us. He's the very presence of this holy God that Isaiah captures a glimpse of. And the whole gospel of Matthew is this account of what it's like to stand in the presence of this God. He's not physically domineering like um, the, the vision that Isaiah sees, but he is a totally different person. He is a person of immense love. We see in Jesus, when we look at him, a person of wondrous grace and goodness. And when we take the time to stare at this Jesus, like the people in the story of Matthew get to, we'll find ourselves in the same position, which is that their hearts are strangely warmed. They're drawn to him on one hand, but he's also dangerous because we'll realize how, how fall, far we fall short. That of what it means to be the true human, we, we all end up being not enough. But the good news is that Jesus, Emmanuel, is also a human. And so he lives in the story of the blessings and the curses of what it means to be human that we all know and we all understand. And as the perfect human, he should receive only blessing when he stands in the presence of God. But as we'll see when we study the Gospel of Matthew, instead he turns his face towards curse. That he walks the path towards Jerusalem and ultimately towards death itself, the greatest curse on us. And so Jesus is the Emmanuel who brings the judgment on one hand, but he's also the one who bears the judgment, and he takes all of our not-enoughness on himself. And by doing that, Jesus also becomes the coal from the story of Isaiah, that he wants to come close to you. That's the, that's the story of Christmas, that God is here, Emmanuel, God is with us, but he's not coming to burn you, he's coming to clean you, and he's coming to send, set you free. As the angel says, you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus meets us in our not enoughness and calls us to come towards him so that we can be made whole, so that we can stand in the presence of God and be blessed. And like Moses, our faces can radiate the glory of God into the world that so desperately needs a picture of what it's like to be loved when you're not enough. And like Isaiah, our mouths can be changed to speak of this God and the glory that we know in him and the beauty that it is to follow him. And like Jesus, even, whose life reflects the very glory of God in the human form, we can, as well, with our broken vessels, shine the light of the glorious God into the world. And this is what we do when we respond together, which we're about to do now. When we come and we sing these songs together, we're entering into that space where we come into the presence of God with imperfect songs, with imperfect lyrics, with imperfect singing, with all of our voices together, we reach into that place where we come into the presence of God. Not as people who are cursed, but, but people because of Jesus are blessed. And then we ask him to take some of that glory and actually shine it out through us, shine it out into this place. As we uh, give of our tithes and offerings, we say to, to our money that you are not where I find my enoughness but I find it in Jesus. 
And we ask that God would transform our hearts to become more like him in that way. As we pray and as we confess with one another, as we take communion together, we're taking the story deep into our hearts and into our lives and asking the God of glory to make something out of our broken vessels. This, according to Matthew, is the story of Christmas and the true story of what it means to be human. The God of Israel is here. The God of Israel will save. And the God of Israel wants to remake us into righteous people with the worst parts of us forgiven and the best parts of us renewed by his grace. Would you join me as we pray to close? God, we thank you so much for your story and the person of Jesus. We thank you that you do want to come close. And uh, for some of us, um, yeah, coming close uh, will mean that we have to take a hard look at ourselves into the place that we're not enough. But I know that there's people here too that are just experiencing that right now. They know that they're not enough, that they're falling short in whatever area of their life uh, it is. And so I pray that you would meet us in that space. Would you give us a glimpse of your glory that we would come and worship? And may we also fall deeply in love with the person of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. May we come into your presence uh, through Christ. And as we worship together, as we sing, as we give, as we take communion, we pray that you would meet us in this space that we would find ourselves blessed and may we in some way reflect your glory. We pray these things together in the name of Christ. Amen.